Harris is going to uh, teach this morning from Philippians chapter 1. And I was always told when you are introducing somebody that you should say three things about them, three positive things about them. And uh, I, <laughs> just to be careful, you know, to make sure. Um, you're supposed to say three positive things about them. And I was thinking about what I could say about Weston. And there are too many. There are too many great things to say about this young brother. Um, Weston and I, a long time ago, went through a book together uh, called Family Man, Family Leader. This is a great book. If you, uh, In particular, if you want to be a godly family man, it's a fantastic book. Family Man, Family Leader by Philip Lancaster. Uh, and we went through that together. And as we went through it, um, I was impressed by a man who could keep up with, and this, I'm not trying to be prideful, but who could keep up with my reading. Um, and exceed it at times, who could read at a pace that was equal to mine, if not sometimes faster and more thorough. Um, so that's one positive aspect of Weston. He is a godly man who is disciplined. The second thing that I would want you to know about Weston before he speaks is this man loves his wife and children more than anything. Um, he is a godly father and a godly husband. And Kayla has uh, been a delight in our life for a very long time. And we honestly thought that there would not be a man who could uh, capture her affections. And yet he did. Um, And rightly so. Then we met Weston and we were like, wow, all right. Um, God certainly brought two very special and unique people uh, together. And then finally, uh, the last thing I would tell you about Weston is the... Word of God and Jesus are chief in his affections in every sense of the word. So when he brings the word, you can be confident that he is going to um, he is going to be focused on what it says, how it has spoken to him, and what it will say to us. So uh, I want to encourage you. This this is his first time preaching. So give him something. And don't don't do what we Baptists are notorious for. This this one. Okay? Give him something as he preaches. Remember that preaching is an act of corporate worship. We are worshiping the Lord together. So you are permitted. I know it feels weird, but you are permitted to say things in response and to rejoice in him. So let's I'm gonna pray for Weston and then Weston's gonna come. And I'll hand him this mic. It'll be an awkward handoff. It'll be great. Father, we pray that you uh, speak now to us as we long to hear your voice. Lord, that you would uh, speak through your word. That we could delight in the message that you have for us. And that we could um, praise you together. Lord, we love you and we trust you in all things. Amen. Good morning. morning. Really glad to be here with you guys this morning. Um, If you could open up to Philippians 2. We're going to be in Philippians 2, 1 through 11 today. Focusing really on uh, 5 through 11. Um, So so this is, in my mind, one of the most significant passages in the New Testament. Uh, 
it's, it's really a powerful testimony to the divinity, the humility, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And I think this is really important for us to understand. But before we jump into the passage, I want to remind you that Paul's letter to the church in Philippi was written during his imprisonment in Rome. So he's writing this from prison around the early 60s AD. And I want you to remember that Philippi was a Roman colony and that Paul had a special relationship with them as he had founded this Christian community during his second missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts 16. And because the Philippians were Roman citizens, they were subject to Roman laws, Roman customs, and partakers in Roman culture. And as such, Paul's letter to them reflects the influence of these Roman cultural and societal norms. And he uses terms and concepts that would have been familiar to them. We'll touch on today some of these ideas around social status, honor, and even loyalty that were essential core values to them. And kind of what I see here is Paul taking what was important to them in their culture and reorienting it to the example that Christ has given to us. So moving into Philippians 2, I want to frame this in the larger context of Philippians as a whole. In order to do so, I'll read the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any encourage, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in, in this context, Paul has introduced the theme of unity in the church. In chapters 1, verses 27 to 30, he urges them to strive to live lives worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit with one mind and being prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ. And again, here you see in verse 2, Paul references unity within the church exhorting them to be of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord with one another. So with this theme of unity in mind, he says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So the way to achieve unity is to step back in humility and to count others as more significant or important than ourselves. So unity is born out of humility, and that's really the first point here that unity is born out of humility. Paul follows this up in verse 4 with the idea that we should look out for others' interests, and not only our own. Yes, we're responsible for our own lives, but we should also look out for each other's well-being, helping to take care of each other. We need to be willing to get involved in each other's lives and learn what is important to them, their goals, their dreams, their needs. And I believe one of the marks of a true believer is one who is present with the body of Christ. And one of the marks of a true church is a place where people function as a community. So the second point here is that unity is born out of participation, specifically in the body of Christ. So when Paul writes in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, he's referring to the attitude of humility, which Christ is the perfect example of. So let's read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, 
he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now the first thing I want to touch on here is the divinity of Christ and what that means for us. The passage begins by stating that Jesus existed in the form of God. If you look at verse 6, and the word here for form is morphe in the Greek. And this carries the idea of the essential nature of the being. So morphe truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. In other words, if we apply this to God, existed in the form of God could be translated to say that Christ existed with the same nature as God, sharing in his divine attributes. It's important to understand this because some over the years have twisted this to say that Jesus was a created being, a spirit being like an angel, not having the essential nature of God, but rather a non-divine but spiritual essence. Over the past couple of months, we've had Jehovah's Witnesses coming by the house. Um, they're very persistent. You know, they brought donuts. They're coming in and chatting with Kayla and the kids. But they would always come while I'm away at work. And so I'd hear about these conversations after the fact. And so finally, a few weeks ago, I took a week off for vacation. We were painting some tables and chairs in the front of our house, and they stopped by. And they came to invite us to one of their services. This was just before Easter. And so they were, they were telling us about Jesus. And um, they actually quoted Philippians 2, 6 to me. But they used the word that he was, existed as a spirit being. And I, I keyed onto that. I thought that was kind of odd. Because I'm not, I'm not used to that type of language. And so after the conversation, I did some research. And I learned that they believed that Jesus was a created being. And that he was not divine in the same sense as God the Father. And I didn't realize it at the time. But we think the person coming by was actually one of the leaders. Or maybe the primary leader here in town. And it became very apparent to me. Even after our short conversation. That our beliefs about Jesus and who he was. Were drastically different from the Jehovah's Witnesses. So in the second part of verse 6, he writes that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this is really interesting here. This, this phrase, a thing to be grasped here in the original language, carries the idea of forcefully taking or grabbing hold of something. And can be used in the context of a robbery or in a retaining of something that rightfully belongs to you. The difference here being something that is taken, such as in a robbery or something that is held onto forcefully. If you look at the King James Version, it actually translates this as being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So if I rephrase this, though Jesus was of the same essential nature as God, he did not think that his equality with God was something to be forcefully held on to. So with that said, I think one of the best ways to check ourselves is to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Are there other places we can look to determine if Jesus was the eternal Son of God or rather a created spirit being? One place we can look is the Gospel of John. When I was thinking about this question, I remember that in John 20, verse 31, his purpose in writing is so that those who read may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I'd like to briefly outline the opening chapter of John, and I think it becomes clear. So in John 1.1, 1, 1, he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
So in this first chapter of John, he takes us through a journey that beautifully identifies various aspects of the nature of Jesus. We see Jesus, first off, as the Word, the Logos. In verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And in verse 3, all things were made through him. And I think this points to this eternally pre-existing state before creation. And there's a number of really neat themes that John goes through, and and he introduces them here in the first chapter, and he carries them through the entire book. Um, So one of these is life. Verse 3, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so we have life and we have light. And so life and death are contrasted here, whereas Jesus is life. And then light and darkness are contrasted throughout the book where Jesus is the light. Verses 9 and 10, it says that this true light, he came into the world, but the world did not know him. And he came to his own people and they did not receive him. But those who did receive them, he gave them the right to become children of God. And so he gives those who receive them the right to be adopted into the family of God. Verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, verse 17, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God. That the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John is clearly painting a picture of Jesus as eternally existing with God. In the beginning, sharing in the act of creation and refers to Jesus as the only God who's at the Father's side. So Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. In him all things hold together. So Paul thought of Jesus as the image of the invisible God, and he calls Christ the firstborn of all creation. Though we know from other passages that firstborn here does not necessarily mean born first. If you look up in this word in the Greek, it can be translated as existing before all creation or existing superior to all creation. In addition, he mirrors the language in John 1, showing Jesus as creator of all and holding all things together. Furthermore, in Hebrews 1.3, it is written, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we see here that the New Testament writers believe Jesus was more than a spirit being, more than a created being who became divine. And as we survey scripture, we see a portrait of Jesus as being fully God and fully man. So what about the Jews? I'll remind you in John 5, 18, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his father and thus making himself equal with God. The Jews understood Jesus' claims to be equal with God. In John 10, 33, it says, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. So the Jews clearly understood that in his teaching and in the words Jesus spoke to them, he was making himself out to be God. So what did Jesus say about himself? You see in John 10, he says, I and the Father, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. This is an assertion of his divinity as it implies a oneness with God 
that goes beyond the relationship of a created being and his creator. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So again here is reference to the pre-creation state where Jesus existed as part of the Godhead. In John 8, 58, the Jews are questioning him and comparing him to Abraham. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews would have been familiar with Exodus 3, where God tells Moses, I am who I am. So here he is making himself out to be the eternally pre-existent God who revealed himself in the Old Testament to the Jews. So we see that Scripture clearly lays out the case for Jesus carrying the essential nature of God. And I think maybe where some get caught up is in not considering the whole of Scripture. And so like I mentioned earlier, we have to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. We can't pull things out of context. So let me give you a couple of bullet points just to summarize the divinity of Jesus. So first off, the writers of the New Testament understood that Jesus was God. We see this throughout Scripture in the specific ways they write about him. Second, the Jews understood Jesus' claims to be God. And in fact, this is why they were trying to kill him. And three, Jesus himself claimed to be one with God. So there's no other explanation or description who covers, description who, covers who Jesus truly is. So that was the summary of Christ's divinity. Let's move on to Christ's humility. And just as a side note, keep in mind that in their culture, being a Roman colony, they placed a high value on social status and honor. And they sought ways to elevate themselves as this was one of their core values. Um, for them, I think honor and dishonor were much more impactful than they are to us in our culture. And so with that said, and seeing Christ's divinity, listen again to verses six through eight who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So instead of holding on to his divinity, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, basically the lowest class in society. Remember at the beginning that social status was a core value and something that they would strive to improve? So here Christ has given that up completely. Now, if he would have been born as a king, that would have been a humble life compared to his divinity. But that's not the example he gives us. He took the form of a servant. And the word emptied here means to drain or render void, to empty oneself of power or significance. And this is not to say that he gave up his divinity and was no longer God. MacArthur writes, this was a self-renunciation, not an emptying himself of deity, nor an exchange of deity for humanity. So even though he was of the same nature as God, he willingly laid that aside and took the form, this word morphe, again, of a servant. And if you dig into the word servant here in the Greek, it's doulos, which is the word for slave. And so what does he do? He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Jesus, the Son of God, not only takes on the likeness of man, he takes on the likeness of the lowest form of man. And he further humbles himself in obedience to the lowest point, death by crucifixion. And so just a note on crucifixion, 
Death on a cross was a really common form of execution, and it was really used to punish criminals and rebels in that time. Criminals and rebels against the Roman Empire. It was brutal, and it was a torturous method of execution. It was designed to cause as much pain and suffering as possible. It was also a means for them to send a clear message to the population. It was a public spectacle with a condemned being stripped, beaten, and humiliated before being nailed or tied to a wooden cross and left to die. And so just the sight of a crucified person was a powerful reminder of the consequences of disobedience and rebellion against the Roman authorities. The eternal son of God being crucified like a criminal. If you remember, honor was an important thing for them. Like one of their core values. Well, crucifixion was the ultimate example of dishonor in their society. So keying in on this principle of humility, if we survey scripture, we, we can see some really great examples. In Psalm 138.6, it says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 29.23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. In James 4.6, it says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And remember in Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector? The Pharisee is proud and boasts about his righteousness, while the tax collector humbly asks for God's mercy. But Jesus says that it was the tax collector who goes home justified before God. And I want to open up a few examples from the Old Testament as well. If you remember Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And even so, he didn't hold a grudge against them. Instead, he forgave them and showed them kindness when they came to him for help during the famine. When Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of trying to seduce her, Joseph didn't defend himself or try to prove his innocence. He trusted in God and accepted that his unjust imprisonment with humility. When, Joseph, when Pharaoh called Joseph to interpretive dreams, he was able to interpret them well, but he didn't take credit for that gift. He gave all the credit to God and acknowledged his own limitations. So he displayed humility by putting other people first, forgiving those who wronged him, and acknowledging God's sovereignty in his life. If you remember Moses, despite being raised in the house of Pharaoh and receiving a royal education, he identified with his people the Hebrew people who were slaves and their suffering. And he chose to leave his privileged life behind and identify with them, even though it meant facing persecution. When God called Moses to lead them out of slavery, he initially hesitated, feeling inadequate and unworthy of such a great task. But he trusted in God's strength to accomplish it. When the Hebrew people rebelled against God in the wilderness, Moses interceded on their behalf, pleading for God's mercy and forgiveness. So he put the needs of his own people before his reputation and safety. And despite being chosen by God as their leader and receiving the Ten Commandments directly from him, he never sought to elevate himself above his people. He remained humble and dedicated to serving God throughout his life. Think about Job, the righteous man who suffered great loss and affliction, but even so he remained faithful to God. Now, if you remember when Job lost everything, he didn't curse God or question his goodness. Instead, he fell to the ground in worship 
and acknowledged that everything he had had come from God in the first place, and so God had the right to take it all away. When his friends came to him and tried to explain his suffering as a result of sin, he didn't become defensive or self-righteous. Instead, he acknowledged his limitations and expressed his desire to come before God in humility and learn from him. When God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, he didn't argue with God or question God's wisdom. Instead, he acknowledged his own ignorance and repented in dust and ashes. I think this is just another beautiful example of humility. And I think there's a theme here that ties all of these together. It's just trusting in God's sovereignty. That when, when these things happen, when we're put down or falsely accused, that we can trust that God is in control and that he has a plan. Now, another example is Daniel. So when Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity in Babylon, they didn't rebel or complain. Instead, they humbly submitted to the king's authority, but still sought to honor God in their lives. When King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that none of his wise men could interpret, Daniel didn't boast or take credit for his ability to interpret the dream. Instead, he acknowledged that his wisdom came from God, and he gave God the glory for the interpretation. When he was thrown into the lion's den, he didn't panic or plead for mercy. He trusted in God's protection, and he calmly waited for God to deliver him. So Daniel displayed humility by submitting to authority, and that's a hard one, acknowledging God's sovereignty and wisdom, and seeking God's guidance and protection in all things. And so, again here, I think if we truly understand that God is the sovereign ruler of all, it enables us to live with humility. So coming back to Jesus, we can consider his life and him being the eternal son of God. If you remember, he was born in a stable and grew up in Nazareth. And he spent his ministry years serving others, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, forgiving sin, and teaching without seeking recognition or personal gain. Now, if you remember, he consistently showed love and kindness to those who were rejected and despised by society. And this is really one of my favorite things about Jesus. This included tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, really the poor and the outcast. And the Gospel of Luke does a really great job of outlining that. He, he washed the disciples' feet. This is one that, that we've touched on recently in another sermon, but if you just think about the eternal Son of God washing disciples' feet. This was typically a task reserved for the lowliest of servants, but he did this as an example of humility and servanthood for the disciples and for us to follow. Now, he was taken through a series of trials prior to his crucifixion with false witnesses accusing him and lies against him, but he didn't retaliate. When he was reviled, he didn't answer. When he was beaten, he didn't fight back. And when he was mocked, he didn't respond. Jesus displayed humility by willingly taking on the role of a servant and putting others' needs before his own in obedience to the Father. He modeled sacrificial love and sacrifice, and ultimately he gave his life for the sake of others. This is the mind that we are to have as the body of Christ. So let me summarize Jesus' example of humility. Um, first off, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, emptied himself. Second, he took on the lowest form of humanity as a servant. And third, and in humble obedience, he died the death of a criminal on a cross. Finally, moving on to Christ's exaltation, 
Let me read verses 9 through 11 again. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So the word therefore here links the humility of Christ with the passage that follows, giving us a pattern of humility and exaltation. The word exalted here in the Greek means to give exceptional honor or to raise to the supreme position. So how did God exalt him? Well, first there was the resurrection with Jesus being raised from the dead. And then sometime later, he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. So because of his obedience and humility, God raised him to the supreme position, giving him honor and bestowing on him the name that is above every name. And what is this name? It is Lord, as the sovereign ruler of all. So another aspect of Roman culture that I wanted to point out is loyalty, and specifically loyalty to the Roman Empire and to the emperor and his authority. This was a big deal for them. In Rome, the law reigned supreme. Paul's letter, however, highlights the lordship of Jesus Christ as supreme over every earthly authority. Paul encourages the Philippians to have their allegiance and devotion directed toward Christ rather than any human ruler or system. The Roman emperors exalted themselves and were exalted by that human system. But Jesus is the true ruler and Lord of all. And if you remember in 2 Thessalonians, we've been going through chapter 2, and one of the things that's pointed out there is the man of lawlessness who exalts himself above all. You contrast this with the example of Jesus who humbled himself to the lowest point. So how does creation respond? It says that every knee should bow. And the word for bow here means to bow is a sign of humility before a divine figure. Paul also uses it in Romans 11.4 while quoting 1 Kings, where it refers to those who have remained faithful and not bowed the knee to Baal. The word emphasizes an outward action in worship or prayer that corresponds to an inward disposition. So it's an outward action that corresponds to an inward disposition. And this signifies the universal acknowledgement of Jesus and his divine identity. And note here who bows. Every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. So in heaven here refers to spiritual beings or those of heaven. And I believe that this encompasses both good and evil spiritual beings. On earth refers to all living human beings. And under the earth refers to all of the dead for all time. So this is universal. It encompasses everyone and all people everywhere for all time. Now, not everyone bows in this life. Scripture is clear, though, that everyone will bow in the future. Similarly, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess here means to agree or to profess allegiance. And this is to the glory of God the Father. So this exaltation of Jesus, this lifting to the highest point, perfectly fulfills God's plan. And we see the glory of God in its culmination. So I'll summarize this for us. This is the ultimate exaltation of Jesus Christ. As a part of his eternal plan, God the Father has given Jesus the highest honor and authority in the universe as Lord, 
the sovereign ruler of all. And one day every creature will acknowledge his lordship. So how should we respond in light of this? First, we are to set aside selfish ambition for the sake of unity. Christ provides here for us the ultimate example of humility for us. And here in the context of Philippians 2, we see the clear call to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. We need to put aside our selfish ambitions and align our goals, our priorities, and our lives to strive for unity within our local body. Let me say that again. We are to set aside selfish ambition for the sake of unity. Second, we are to live lives in true humility, remembering that God gives grace to the humble. In Romans 12, 10, Paul writes, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Just as we are known in the body of Christ by our love for one another, we should also be known as believers by the way we give preference to one another in honor. In 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter writes, In all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And there will be times that it will be hard to be humble. There will be times where it will be hard to give preference to others, to count others as more significant than ourselves. And it is during these times that we need to cling to Christ's example of humility. We also remember the numerous examples from Scripture, from the lives of men who were passed over, who were wrongly accused, who were sold into slavery, who were timid. We are given the gift of their stories through scripture to help prepare us for the work of ministry. So we remember that God gives grace to the humble. And finally, we are to bow to him and confess Jesus as Lord. So the application here for us is to truly consider who Jesus is and how we should respond who the New Testament writer said he is, who the Jews said he was, and who he himself claimed to be. So let me urge you that if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus and submitted your life to him, do so now. Don't wait, for tomorrow isn't promised to us. Bow to him now willingly as Savior and confess him as Lord. So let me pray for us. Lord, You've given us the perfect example of humility. I pray that you would remind us of these things, that you would help us to live our lives in a way that glorifies you and reveres your character to the world. I pray this week as we live our lives that you would remind us of your perfect example and help us to honor you in everything we do. Amen. As we come to a time of communion together, before we partake, let's remember the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood poured out for us.